What's up, y'all? I'm Yancey Trickler, and welcome to the Idea Space. Last fall, I read a fascinating paper presenting a new concept called democratic data. It's a new way of thinking about our digital lives. I reached out to the paper's author, Salome Villiun, a postdoc fellow at Cornell Tech and a soon-to-be law professor. My conversation with Salome, as you will soon hear, was remarkable. Her ideas are super smart, and she gets at both what's so wrong about how we're exploited by giant tech companies, as well as why the criticisms lobbied against those companies are often so misguided. All of which creates new possibilities for how society can use data and create potentially a better future. This conversation is the first of a series on the subject of data is fire, how humanity's ability to tame and understand data will largely dictate where things go from here. In this series, we'll hear from others who work in the field of data to get their honest opinions on where we are and where we're going. Here's Salome. So my name is Salome Fulyun. Um, I'm a joint postdoctoral fellow between Cornell Tech, where I sit in the Digital Life Initiative um, and sort of work on the ethics and politics of digital life and uh, NYU School of Law, where I work on information law. And my joint role is kind of um, meant to be a pretty interdisciplinary look, and my work tends to be pretty interdisciplinary, really looking at how the law governing technology and particularly information production can facilitate inequality and how alternative legal regimes or alternative ways of kind of thinking about the project of governing information production might address that inequality. Um, and so that's kind of a high level pitch of what I do and what I'm interested in. But, um, yeah, I really, uh, you know, the, in that broad topic span a number of, uh, of sort of more detailed questions, but that's at a high level what I'm, what I'm up to. <laughs> what, what was the breadcrumb trail that, that drew you to this? Depends on how far back you want to go. But I mean, in, in undergrad, I studied political economy. I've always been interested in questions of how our political and economic arrangements um, distribute resources and power between people and how those are political choices that we make. Um, and I, I started off being really interested in healthcare um, and the social policy around healthcare. And I, after undergrad, went to the London School of Economics where I studied health care. Um, and I think when I was there, I, I had a, a, a theory of how empirical work changes the world, which was that if we can just get to the facts, you know, um, about how it makes no sense to allocate healthcare with the private market, then we can sort of begin to proceed more sensibly um, and more ethically in how we sort of think about healthcare distributed in, in this country. And I'm, I'm located in the U.S. as I'm saying this. Um, and the funny thing about studying healthcare and working under the NHS at, at that time was that the, um, all the debates about the Affordable Care Act were happening in the U.S. And it struck me that my theory of change was totally wrong <laughs> and that um, you kind of have to proceed with a certain ethical distributive commitment um, to, you know, basic forms of social welfare and then let the empirics guide you in how you distribute those resources um, fairly and efficiently. But that you weren't going to kind of math your way into um, convincing people that they had an ethical commitment to provide people health care or that citizens have a right to health care. Um, and so that led me to go to law school. <laughs> I was like, where do people fight? <laughs> where do you develop advocacy skills? Um, and in law school, I became really interested in consumer protection and predatory lending. So also issues of economic justice. And from there, I really found my way to um, to digital technology um, and all the ways in which um, you know, di digital life was really kind of mediating the environments in which people um, relate to one another, socialize, but also um, kind of experience all the sorts of questions that consumer protection lawyers are interested in, just to say sort of predatory arrangements between consumers and producers. And that kind of led me to where I am today. <laughs> so, so how do you distinguish between your like your facts data driven theory of change to what it has evolved to now. So what, what, what is that Delta? What, what is it that you learned? Yeah. Um, I think it was probably something that was always implicitly there for me. Um, but 
I think that I think that my my like theory of my order of operations kind of changed, which is to say that you know I think I think before I was really committed to the idea that if we could simply show that it was inefficient or、um, stupid to allocate certain resources using, for example, a private market mechanism because ability to pay was poorly matching willingness to pay. All of the sets of assumptions that we would have about market goods were not being satisfied in a certain,、um, like, particular、uh, allocative question. That the information signal of price was breaking down due to like inelasticity of demand, for instance. All of these things are true of healthcare, by the way.、Um, that you know, we, that that was all we needed to do,、um, and that's just really not the case. That's not how people reason about large social welfare programs.、Um, Or I came to the conclusion that that's not how people reason about large social welfare programs,、um, and that caused me to sort of think about the order of operations flipping, which is to say that you know I think that you can sort of proceed from an ethical commitment, or you can reason with people about why they should have ethical commitments or not have ethical commitments, but that's a different type of reasoning. That's a different type of、um, advocacy or engagement, ethical or normative reasoning, than empirical reasoning. And maybe once you've, you've decided that there's an ethical commitment or that one should do something, you can then proceed to how can we do this? Can this be realized? How do we realize this ethical commitment as responsibly and fairly as possible? And those are all, you know, questions、um, where if, empirical inquiry is extremely important.、Um, but yeah, I think、uh, I think my order of operations flipped a bit <laughs> between the two. Yeah. So where you are. Maybe you're you're trying to start at a place of, I don't know, coalition building or or creating a a, a heterogeneous perspective or versus like, you know, is it is it focusing on who's on the room versus like an、uh, and trying to win by an outcome like? Um, I think that I think my I think that if you're trying to develop a coalition or you're trying to appeal to. Why, for instance, the law should find certain interests legally relevant, and we should be regu- regulating a certain set of activities. You can proceed. I think it makes sense to proceed first with the argument of why it's necessary. What are the harms at stake? What are the interests at stake? And once you've kind of conceptually made that argument, you can begin to bring people around if they think like, "Well, I agree with you normatively, but how do we realize this?" or Is this going to be too costly, or does this get in the way of some of our other goals? Those are all questions where you know I think empirical inquiry is incredibly important. But to get people on board with the basic idea that this is deserving of of political response,、um, and which all law, all legal response is political response,、um, I think just engages in a different kind of. Reasoning than empirical reasoning.、Um, it's not about facts in the world. It's about what we think we owe one another.、Um, mm. So yeah, that's kind of how I see them relating. Yeah,、uh, yeah. You know, while you were in the UK,、uh, you had you worked some with the Quali score. Is that right? Which is one of the more、yes. interesting empirical、uh, methods. Can you talk about that? Yeah.、Um, so I did a bunch of work on the、um, Quality Outcomes Framework.、Um, Or and and quality scores, which was basically just a, a, a way to try to measure the performance across a range of health indicators of healthcare providers in the in the United Kingdom. And so, what that、um, sort of quality outcomes framework was attempting to do was to try to test in a variety of priority areas、um, how well providers did in achieving those outcomes, and it broke down.、Um, Within each kind of large silo area of of, of kind of、um, priority,、uh, it broke down kind of the overall score that a provider could get、um, in a mix of process indicators and outcome indicators,、um, and that mix was very intentionally meant to kind of strike a balance between what the ultimate goal of a healthcare system is, which is to have a healthier citizenry, or that's at least the goal of the UK healthcare system.、Um, And and which you know is of course ultimately the goal, but you know some portion of of health is not totally、um, in a provider's control, but they can meet certain process standards like prescribing people aspirin if they have high blood pressure, for instance. So we use we every in,、uh, sort of 
area of health had like a mix of these process and outcome variables. And we would sort of manage that mix to try to incentivize providers to um, sort of give everyone the best health care that, that they could, um, again, with the overall goal of in, improving health outcomes across the UK. So I'm happy to talk in more detail about the qualities, but yeah. Well, just maybe, maybe how successful were those interventions? Yeah, that was a, a question of, that was an ongoing debate, actually, among health economists. Um, and I have to, have to admit, I haven't kept up with that debate. But um, it, it seemed, uh, last I checked when I was there, it seemed to have had a moderately positive outcome on overall healthcare performance. And again, what you want to do is you want to measure the cost of the program compared to the, the improvement in health outcomes that we were seeing. Um, and I think when I, when I left, um, the, the sort of state of debate was that it had had a moderately positive outcome. Um, you know, and again, it's always interesting to think about relatively where these things start out. I mean, the UK already had a fairly sophisticated way of sort of balancing process and outcome variables before they implemented the quality, quality outcomes framework. So you could imagine seeing perhaps more significant gains in a, in a place like the US or something like that. But um, yeah, I think it had had overall had a, a, a moderately positive effect. So one of the reasons I was excited to talk was a recent paper you wrote uh, called Democratic Data, a Relational Theory of Data Governance. Can you explain what this paper is about? Yeah, there are so many potential ways to explain what this paper is about. Um, but I'll, I'll sort of try to, um, and they're related. So uh, on the one hand, I think the paper is really trying to just make a conceptual point about what the what information collection and production is all about in a digital economy um, and point out how that kind of basic economic activity is pretty out of step with how a lot of the law regulating uh, data production thinks about, about data collection, which is to say that a lot of the economic production or sort of the economic activity around information production is not about any one individual data subject as that individual data subject, but about what data collected from one individual can meaningfully reveal or um, be sort of said to indicate about all sorts of other people who share relevant population level features with that data subject. So, you know, I always say, you know, the, the project of the digital economy and when I go around and live my online life and I'm subject to all sorts of surveillance, the, the point of all of that surveillance isn't so that companies can collect all of the Salome data that they just stick in a Salome folder. No, they're, you know, building behavioral models and all sorts of um, predictive systems using that information to sort of construct all of these relevant population level categories that I'm a member of. So I'm a millennial and I'm a woman and I'm a cat lover. And then those facts are used to make all sorts of predictions about me and others who share those features to sort of try to nudge us in various ways. Um, and that's not how the law thinks about information production. That's not the sort of set of basic activities that the law kind of approaches information production with. It really does think of me as one individual data subject that has kind of a sphere of autonomy that needs to be kind of protected and that I have a set of rights over. And, um, you know, I can sort of negotiate with all of these other people about what what I have control over and what I don't have control over. Um, and so that's kind of one level of, of intervention. Um, Another is I think it's really just proceeding from the question of what makes datafication wrong. Um, and again, here's, you know, starting with the ethical reasoning. So, you know, uh, you, I think in the old legal story of what makes datafication wrong, it, it's that story of that, you know, my little sphere of my inviolate inner life um, that I negotiate and set the terms of who can access that inner sphere. And um, it's the purpose of the law to sort of protect that sphere. And what makes statification wrong is that we are sort of allowing too many um, companies or too many other entities to kind of violate that sphere. That's that sort of commodification or that legibility of inner life that's so wrong. Um, and again, I think what I'm trying to do in the piece is to say, well, yeah, maybe that's part of what's going on here. But so so much of what's actually happening in the digital economy is a little bit more complicated than that. It's It's not it's not that these that data flows are wrong because they undermine my personal autonomy. 
when they may be wrong when they materialize unjust social relations on the basis of these flows. So when it relates me to other people in a way that contributes to social projects of oppression or marginalization, when as a cost of me engaging in digital life, I am drafted into projects of oppressing others in ways that, um, you know, again, on my political and ethical commitments, violate the sense of mutual obligation I have with those people. But I have absolutely no control um, uh, over those social processes that I am sort of drafted into as the cost of engaging in digital life. And for a legal scholar, that's what we should understand is the project of governing information production. We should say, what sorts of social relations do we want to develop in, in digital life and um, between one another in our digital lives? And how can we sort of start to see the project of um, fixing what's wrong with datification, if, if, you, if you might take it that way, um, as that project of, of helping us sort of relate to one another in productive ways digitally and, and through, through our information rather than um, sort of unjust and, and oppressive ways? Yeah, I mean, the, the paper is a... You know, it's a really interesting critique, and I want to get into a couple of those pieces. Um, but I also found it to be kind of optimistic about the potential value of data, and also how mm-hmm. we are we are limiting ourselves by how we currently think about this. So while I, I think it is quite pointed, I also think it does it does suggest you know we're we're, we're leaving some things on the table that I think is interesting. Absolutely. Yeah. So, so I love I love the way you talk about. Two predominant critiques of data today, you call them the proprietarian and dignitarian uh, models. Can you talk about, you touched on them a little bit in that answer, but can you explain more about sort of what those are and maybe also why you think they are problematic? I think you, you would suggest maybe they both have effective critiques to offer, but they also are perhaps a bit limited too. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So, yeah, in the piece, I kind of conceptualize these two dominant legal responses to, you know, what makes datification wrong as the sort of, yeah, a, prop, a property-based um, response and a sort of dignity, dignitarian-based response. And the propertarian response is really one that says, you know, there are all of these companies that are getting so rich off of this valuable resource, which is our data, and, uh, you know, it it's it's unjust enrichment. <laughs> They're sort of taking this resource from us from free. It's techno-feudalism. You know, we're just serfs providing free labor for these feudal overlords. And what we really need is a property right or a labor right to our data. So this is kind of the intuitive theory of, like, it's our data and we should be paid for it. And I think there's a intuitive response to the incredible amounts of income inequality that have sort of facil- been facilitated or have, co- have coexisted with um, the rise of technology companies, and it 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 makes intuitive sense. But um, you know, again, in the piece, I think conceptually, what that gets wrong is that you know, as, as I kind of pointed out in the digital economy, my data isn't just my data. Um, companies can make all kind. They can make every inference about me that they can make right now, even if I never contributed any information to the digital economy. Um, so there's a little bit of that, like, differential, right? Like, even if I'm totally excluding myself, I'm still subject to all of the forms of manipulation and um, sort of undermining autonomy and subject formation that get cr- critics like Shoshana Zuboff all worked up. But, um, you know, that, that that would be perfectly um, sort of consistent with a propertarian view. Um, and, and the same is true the other way around. Like, I could be perfectly okay um, giving Facebook my data, and I could say, great, Facebook's paying me, like, $5 a month for my data. I'm all set. Um, but it could go on to be used in all kinds of very harmful and um, oppressive ways on somebody else that wasn't party to that exchange at all. So in that way, the propertarian response kind of falls prey to classic externality problems um, as a legal solution. Um, the dignitarian response is really um, one that thinks of the the appropriate sort of legal response to datification as kind of providing us um, more more protection for our information, almost as an extension of the protections that we ourselves hold as as citizens. So it's um, sort of typified by the types of legal responses that give me not like not a property or a labor right, but something like a civic right or a human right to my data. And so that type of right would not extinguish at the point of exchange but would sort of 
flow through or continue through a system to prevent information about me being used against me in certain kind of legally protected ways. And so a classic example of something like this is to say, um, you know, any information that I share with my um, mobile phone provider cannot be accessed by law enforcement uh, for, you know, in order to detain me or anything without a warrant. Um, and again, I think that there are really beneficial things that we get in those sorts of dignitarian protections. I think that they um, really help protect me as a data subject. They give me sort of a more robust suite of rights. But once again, they don't really have anything to say about mass forms of mass data extraction that are being used to target not me, but a bunch of other people like me in sort of a probabilistic way. Um, and so there, once again, I think the, the comparison breaks down. Um, so, yeah, I'm happy to talk more about, about those. But, you know, I think the flip side of, of, of when we start to move away from these sorts of conceptions isn't just that we get a much more precise idea of what makes datafication wrong. But we also conceptually open up our terrain for really thinking about what forms of data production um, and data collection are socially necessary as well, which I think is a big problem with, with both of these two um, conceptions. Yeah. One of the ways you review that or one of the ways you reveal that is talking about how there's a, a vertical and a horizontal axis to the data. Mm-hmm. And, and you use you use a, a tattoo AI fictional tattoo AI company to explain this? Do you, do you want to walk mm-hmm. us through that? Yeah. Um, so in the piece, I have this hypothetical scenario um, with these sort of two uh, people, Adam, who's a data subject, and Ben, who isn't a data subject. And Adam is a tattoo enthusiast who uploads images of his tattoo to this social media company called Tattoo View AI, which is clearly just a stylized clear view AI. <laughs> um, and, you know, He's sort of subject to all of these um, these legal protections along the vertical relationship, which is the relation between Adam, our data subject, and Tattoo View, our data collector, um, that you know would be the terrain of proprietarian and dignitarian solutions. So they're all really looking at what, how do we protect this relationship between Adam and Tattoo View, and how can we use the law to kind of equalize the relationship between Adam and Tattoo View. But in the in the scenario in the piece that I walk through. Um, Adam uploads his tattoo image data to Tattoo View, and Tattoo View partners with local law enforcement who use Tattoo View's um, image database to sort of help them predict which tattoos are signs of likely gang membership. And they use this um, program to identify Adam's tattoo as the tattoo of, of, of a gang. Um, and they use this information not to detain Adam, but to detain Ben, who uh, has that same tattoo image. And the problem is that both a proprietarian solution and a dignitarian solution have nothing meaningful to say um, for Ben, who was detained on the basis of this, this tattoo that Adam uploaded, um, and, and in this way sort of is in horizontal relation with Adam in that they share this information. That information or data about Adam's tattoo is, you know, in meaningful ways as much information or data about Ben's tattoo but there's no way that we currently are kind of taking Ben's interests into account when we kind of govern the set of relationships between Adam and Tattoo View AI. And so you call these relational data. And, mm-hmm. and part of your proposal here is to argue for a democratic governance of relational data. Is that right? Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And what yeah. does that mean? Can you, can you tell us what that means? Yeah. Um, so, you know, I think I think in this piece, I'm really just sort of trying to ask a fairly basic question that legal scholars try to ask, which is to say, like, what are the sets of interests that we might have as, as people in a given kind of you know, process and then sorting through which of those interests are or are not legally relevant? Um, so I think at, at a basic matter, if data about Ben's tattoo is being used to detain him, <laughs> Then it should be of legal relevance that those interests that Ben has in that in that in that information are of sufficient legal relevance that we should take them into account. Now there are a number of potential institutional responses that we could have in 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 the law that might take those in, those interests into account. So some of what that might look like is to say that certain forms of information collection, the sort of relational or horizontal interests, are so profound 
that they mitigate against governing that information via individual data subject consent totally. So you could think of positive examples of this and you can think of negative examples of this. So negative examples of this might be something like biometric data. <laughs> you know, um, if I share my DNA, there are so many people whose interests are implicated so strongly um, in that decision that we just, you know, either don't allow people the default of being able to do that absence of proving some sort of standard or under strong purpose limitations or under strong data minimization standards um, saying, okay, I can use my genetic data for a string of tests for Salome and maybe I can like sign a consent form that they're used for, um, you know, overarching or very important medical research, but any sort of commercial activity, we just, given all of the other legal interests that weren't, we aren't able to represent in that exchange, we just disallow that, that kind of thing. But we could also imagine, as I said, positive examples. So we have, we're in a global pandemic now. <laughs> you could imagine um, a, a contact tracing app or something like that that says, you know, um, we're going to monitor anyone who sort of has said that they are tested positive for COVID. We're going to send out, you don't, you don't get a choice whether or not you consent to that kind of information sharing. We're going to let all of your contacts know that you have tested positive. You can't opt out of that. We're not giving you individual consent about that because of the overriding horizontal interests at stake in that kind of information flow. So, um, you know, I think that there are, there are certainly edge cases where we just would say consent doesn't govern here. You as a data subject are not the only interest at stake, and so we're going to expand it. Other forms of institutional responses might look different. Um, so you could imagine like civic data being managed by a municipality for the benefit of its citizens. Um, so you could have a public trust or a civic trust that, man that manages transportation information or all, um, other sorts of levels of city data on behalf of citizens. You could imagine um, strengthening worker protections or sort of allowing worker unions to, um, as my friend Christina says, negotiate the algorithm, which is to say that you could imagine sort of all of the work forms of workplace surveillance being subject to labor law protections, which currently in a lot of jurisdictions they're not. So there's a very there are a variety of potentially institutional reforms that would democratize data governance. You know, and this is um, this is obviously a moment of like. Uh, uh, a real low point of trust for data and trust of private companies mm -hmm. of data, trust of government in data. Um, you could easily make the argument in part this distrust is due to maybe a poor understanding of the nature of data and governance systems that don't match reality. Also, these are nascent things. But how mm -hmm. do you how do you think about rebuilding that trust or say making a case to the public of like, Hey, we should share more in these areas or hey, companies, we yeah. should change change these in these areas. Like what is that conversation? Yeah. Yeah, I mean, I think that's a lot of what motivates my work. I mean, like I think that actually conceptually getting specific and correct about what is like at the root of our concern when we think about data extraction and making that a little bit more refined opens up all of this terrain for us to say, okay, if we have a theory of when data extraction is unjust, we also can then have a theory of when data collection is just. And I think, again, moving away from this sort of individual, has, has this data subject been read, rendered legible against their will theory of data extraction being wrong and asking instead, okay, what are the conditions of data production? What are the purposes for which we're doing it? Um, if we sort of say, okay, yeah, there are certain conditions of data production that are unjust and there are certain purposes for data production that are unjust and saying that also opens up all of this terrain for people to say, here's just data production and here's just reasons to be collecting data um, is kind of a natural corollary of that. So what I always say is that I'm, I'm interested in moving the conversation away from collecting more data versus less data to a conversation about changing the distribution function of information that we collect. So I would love to have us have, have a conversation that isn't just there's far too much data about me that's being collected to getting to one of greater specificity, which is to say there's all of this data that's being collected about my shoe preferences that helps to architect like entire back end surveillance methods around shoes that is trying to sort of nudge me into buying more shoes than I need. On the other hand, we're not collecting nearly enough data about my water usage 
um, for instance. And I think it's incredibly important that we collect a lot more data about everybody's water usage, assuming that you're on board with me and thinking that we're going into a future of climate change and climate crisis. So, you know, having a coherent theory of what makes this information collection wrong so that it opens up the door for saying, how do we change the distribution of information collection, not stop information collection altogether? You know, you you write in a book, you you mention an author that you and I both uh, like a lot, Elizabeth Anderson, and writing about, she writes about um, wanting to be free from uh, domination, the idea of freedom from domination is a theme that comes out in a couple places, and, and sort of seeing democracy as a tool for to free ourselves from domination. Do you see democratic data as like a a similar? Is that is that sort of like that is that is the method by which we can take more control over this? You know, the, the digital yeah. give ourselves agency. Um. Yeah. I mean, I I really think of um. So Elizabeth Anderson uh, writes kind of in, in close conversation with another philosopher, Iris Marion Young, who says that democracy is the condition standing in democracy, like being in an actual fully democratic relationship with another person is the condition of being free from oppression. And so when I invoke democracy in my in my proposal, I'm I'm not just sort of saying here are the kinds of legal institutions I'm interested in. I'm also proposing an actual normative standard for the kinds of data relationships that we should find ourselves in. So how do we develop a relationship, you know, again, between Adam and Ben, that is a democratic relationship, that is standing in that relationship of equality and non-oppression with one another. And so I kind of use it, or I kind of envision that standard as being a normative standard by which we would evaluate different interventions and say, okay, is this proposed legal intervention helping us get closer to democratic relations among along our horizontal data relations? And if the answer is yes, then that's good. <laughs> that's what we have to move towards. Mm. I was recently speaking with the CEO of a major company in this world, and I actually read to them a portion of your paper. Um, oh. <laughs> I did to, to ask for their response. And uh, and sort of proposing, you know, relational data, democratic governance of relational data is what I put in front of them. And okay. they and they basically had three responses. One is, if they understood your definition of relational data proper, properly, this sounded to them like the kind of information that everyone got all freaked out about with Cambridge Analytica, which this person did not, you know, didn't know that that was as big a deal. But he feels like these sorts of data things are are things that people tend to be alarmist about. Um, the other point, the other th- two thoughts he had were that um, on any kind of regulatory space, he feels like, especially the U.S., but the EU, like we're way far behind and that the ability to be innovative around how data is used just feels to him feels like very far away, unfortunately. And that finally, even if you want to share data, say with academics or for other people or with institutions, there are just many restrictions on how you do that. And so he currently feels like there are opportunities that are absolutely there, but there's a limitation because, again, we don't, we just don't quite have as sophisticated a view of this as he thinks we, you know, we could in a more, say, innovative environment. But I'm curious what, what, what you think about that response. Yeah. So I think that, I mean, the project I see for myself as a legal academic is trying to get to the nub of understanding why, or sort of trying to square the circle of why it can be simultaneously the case that people, to take seriously the nub of concern that people have in a Cambridge Analytica story, but try to theorize or understand that concern in a way that doesn't lead to these inelegant or sort of, you know, simultaneously over-narrow and over-broad legal responses that don't map on nicely to the kind of conceptual concern that I'm interested in, which is to say that I don't really think, like, I think if you can develop data infrastructures where people trust that the purpose for which they're sharing that information is what is meaningfully going to be governing that information production, then they don't need all of these like stupid click through consent forms that are like a huge hassle for everyone and, you know, that don't help companies and that don't help data subjects. And all they do is enrich my friends who went to go and work at law firms and <laughs> was writing these terms of service that nobody reads. Um, and instead sort of trying to think about a way that we can get to a, 
I mean, a form of information production that doesn't violate people's senses of trust, doesn't feel make them feel like they were exposed. Again, I think like the way I would articulate the Cambridge Analytica concern is being drafted into a project that you disagree with profoundly as a condition of living your digital life. Mm. Um, that's not that's not a problem of me consenting or not consenting. Mm. That's a problem of the type of data relationships that I was being put into by like being part of that apparatus and disagreeing profoundly with that set of social relations. Um, and I think when we can start to think about things that way, we also open ourselves up to being far more open or far more facilitating of all kinds of positive, you know, all kinds of positive projects, which is to say, you know, again, if you think that there are um, forms of, um, or sort of, you know, again, Elizabeth Anderson talks about the positive conditions of freedom that we should be securing for one another, um, that is going to require data infrastructures. And I think that people are, I guess my, the bet that I'm making is that people are down to contribute to the positive conditions of their freedom if that's how it's sold to them or if that's how it's pitched to them. Um, and that is not Cambridge Analytica. And it looks meaningfully different from Cambridge Analytica. But we can only see that meaningful difference if our conceptual theory of what makes Cambridge Analytica wrong isn't a story of consent. It needs to be a different theory, and that's kind of what I'm trying to get at in the piece. Mm, <laughs> it's a pitch I would make to that team. Yeah, that's great. That's great. <laughs> um, yeah, so that you know that that kind of you know that data infrastructure. Um, you know, if we think about sort of the use cases of that, potential use cases. You know, are, are we imagining that? you know, relational data will help us see inequalities that should be addressed? Is it, is it that relational data identifies, you know, new values by which we distribute goods and services? Is it, you know, is it all those things? Like, what, what, what do you imagine yeah. the steps being? I mean, I think it could easily be all of those things. I think any time that you're thinking about the sets of questions that ask that meaningfully ask what, 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 what as a condition of contemporary life do we owe one another? And how do we go about distributing those goods and services fairly and responsibly in light of people's competing needs and competing interests? All of those questions, which are like basic political and ethical questions, uh, have, will require data infrastructures. Mm-hmm. Um, but that's not the way that we think and talk about this stuff currently. You know, a lot of, again, a lot of the legal language is about, is my autonomy being violated? Which is to say, like, yes, I live in a society. There are all kinds of ways in which my freedom is meaningfully curbed in service of what I owe other people. And that's how we should start to think about, think about the kinds of information production and the kinds of data infrastructures that we want to build. And, you know, I think, again, there, that's about working out to mutually what we think we owe one another. If you, if we think we owe one another a, a, a planet that responds, you know, justly and responsibly to climate crisis, then like, yes, maybe we owe our water data and our relational water data to one another so that our various water utilities can like move into the future with like a good picture of, of what we're dealing with and how they might respond fairly to climate crisis. If we think what we owe one another is like, you know, a, more walkable city, um, then maybe we do want to sort of contribute our transportation data to a transportation authority so that they can help us to live in more walkable cities and inform forms of public planet. But again, that's not really the way we, that's not the way that we sort of think about what we owe and are owed with respect to our information right now. And, and especially in the U.S., there's a, also a credibility gap yeah. of, you know, a, a public distrust of, I don't know the the ability of the of institutions to make change or to be responsive or you know uh, there's there's a lot of challenges there. Um, mm-hmm. I, I'm curious. Um, I have one more question and then I want to go to a lightning round. <laughs> a light, sure. A lightning round. <laughs> uh, so I'm curious. You know, you are a scholar. You are, uh, you know, you will become a law professor and you are going to keep writing about these issues. But if you imagine yourself, say, in different areas of this debate, um, say you're the GC at one of these tech companies, or say you're a journalist, you know, assigned to cover this, or you're a regulator, um, and you were trying to 
you know, inch the world in this direction, what, what are you doing or what are you thinking about? What, 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 what do you think is happening? Yeah, um, it's a really interesting question because I, I'm very much familiar with like where I sit in my theory of change, which is, you know, I think getting conceptually, conceptual clarity is like the good job of an academic and then people kind of take that and, and roll with it. Um, but yeah, I mean, okay, so I'll take general counsel first. It would obviously depend on the kinds of, I mean, it would depend on the kind of technology company I'm in. I mean, part of the problem right now is that like, People have low trust in data infrastructures because they're in a semi-adversarial relation market relationship with a lot of the data infrastructure they encounter. Um, so there's bad ha- Aristotelian habitus that we inculcate in that way. But um, assuming I was at the right kind of technology company and I was, I was general counsel, I would be really interested in um, trying to uh, convince my CEO to take seriously the idea of setting up a data trust that would sit between our core products and services and, and the consumers, um, assuming we're in a consumer-facing business. And that, that data, stru- data trust, so you would have like information collection, it would go into the data trust, that there would be a data trustee who's assigned to kind of adopt the fiduciary uh, relationship with, with those trustees, and that the company then would negotiate or bargain for access to that information with the trust. Um, I would also be very interested in and in sort of advocating the research that looks at, um, you know, sunsetting infer- data. Um, and there's been like, I, now we're getting very rapidly outside my core area of expertise, but I'm keenly interested in research that shows that the performance, you can, there are certain ways of training models and uh, retaining model performance um, on far more economic um, data training sets. So, you know, I think really trying to get lean in terms of our data usage um, is something that I would advocate for. But again, I'm the GC, not not the not the chief engineer. Um, but yeah, so I think that's that's those are probably my my top two for general counsel. If I was a journalist, you know, I think generally the the quality of data journal the journalism in in the um, sort of tech critical space has gotten really good when I started doing this research. Nobody was talking about this stuff. And, um, but you know, I actually think that there's been amazing, uh, instances of like, again, the kind of positive information collection that, um, that journalists can engage. I mean, assuming they have the resources to do can engage in. So there's been amazing reporting again around COVID-19 by, um, by journalists sort of showing like different neighborhoods and how are people moving because of the pandemic and how is it disrupting life? There's like amazing rich data journalism that can be done. And I think a a lot of that is kind of showing the positive counter examples. Um, There's also been really good reporting on like tax havens and financial flows that again is probably, we're probably not producing enough information about People fleeing financial um, resources fleeing to tax havens. So, you know, I think journalism to me stri- strikes me as like a prime example of where we could kind of create that counter narrative or of what are what are sort of the forms of information collection that we're probably not doing enough of. And how can we like learn really important things about our, our lives and, and about important pressing issues through through sort of high quality data journalism. Um, as a regulator. Oh, man. <laughs> so much you could do. Um I mean, it depends on a regulator at which which agency, but, um, you know, I mean, I think of a, a thing that seems to me like pretty low-hanging fruit, um, and probably the technologists who listen to this are not going to like this answer, but I'm a lawyer, <laughs> um, is, in, is um, really pushing for private rights of action in all of our privacy laws. Right now, the people who can bring cases for... Um, for any kind of privacy violation in most states under most privacy laws are only um, state attorneys general or agencies. Individuals cannot form a class and bring a lawsuit under most privacy laws. As a result of that, we have a really underdeveloped common law theory of privacy harm. Um, and I would love to see that kind of capacity open up a little bit. So I think if I was a regulator, I would just say private right of action. <laughs> For most privacy, most a lot privacy of laws. a lot of in-house GCs just gulped at that answer. Yeah, I know they're like horrible. <laughs> oh my goodness! But they yeah. should they should rest easy because I will never be a regular. <laughs> <laughs> also, they should make better policies so they don't have to worry. Um, 
So, uh, so th thank you for all of this. This has been great. Mm -hmm. um, last, I have a lightning round of five questions. Um, oh, man. Okay. And, you know, they're all just basically prompts. And I'm just sort of like interested in your gut reaction. Okay. Um, so, number one, uh, surveillance capitalism. Uh, not so much a problem of surveillance, more just a problem of capitalism. <laughs> All right. Uh, number two, uh, the Facebook antitrust suit. Um, good, but won't fix most of the core problems with the digital economy. <laughs> Do you think it will fix the problems of Facebook? Like what, you know, what? I mean, I think Facebook made the mistake of angering both Democrats and Republicans. If I had to choose a technology company to go after for monopolistic behavior, it would have been Google, obviously, not Facebook. Um, but that's just me. But also, I think that, you know, breaking up Facebook into four companies that have a every incentive in the world to extract as much data as they can in an adversarial way from their clients, as opposed to one company that has an incentive to extract data in a semi-adversarial relationship with its customers, doesn't really change the underlying semi-adversarial extractive relationship with its customers, which is what I'm primarily interested in changing. All right, number three, data portability. Uh, overrated, and I don't know what it means. I think there are probably ways that it could make sense but if you, like me, take the idea of data relationality seriously, data portability quickly falls into conversations that look proprietarian to me. Just not to say that there may not be a version of it that doesn't, but that's my suspicion with it now. Yeah, do you see, like, a, is there a meeting place between, you know, um, you know this rela democratic relational data and, and say, um, you know, data being user held, you know, client held? Like, is there is there just an entirely different arrangement, you think, on the other side of this, potentially? Like, I keep imagining the world where websites don't get access to any of my data. They get access to a, you know, cryptographic key that allows access to certain qualities, but not others. And, you know, yeah. I mean, there's like a, a very different way, I think, of thinking about this. Um, yeah, I mean... Or, if you could start to meaningfully think about like entire groups that could move their information together, um, so sort of group data portability, that would look a lot more like a, the democratic data model that I'm talking about. And also if you could port your data into, again, like a, a collective entity that could then sort of meaningfully negotiate the terms of that relationship on behalf of its members with a platform. Um, that could also start to look more like a, more like a democratic version of data portability. But right now, I think a lot of the language is that like users will take their data and like shop for a better alternative, and like that's that that's just proprietary to me. <laughs> All right, number four, the social dilemma. Oh. Sufficiently scared off by the horrible Twitter discourse about the social dilemma that I spared myself the hate watch experience of the social dilemma. <laughs> All right, last. Number five, uh, 10 years from now, our data will be blank. Ooh. If I was a salesperson, I would say democratic. <laughs> um hopefully deleted <laughs> a lot of, 10 years from now, all the data about me right now, um, hopefully won't exist anymore. Um, but yeah, I mean, uh, okay. Filling in the gap between those two things, um, hope, you know, ideally collectively and more responsibly managed. Well, this has been excellent. Uh, I have learned so much and I think other people will too. And I, I just appreciate you sharing your, your knowledge and perspective. It's been awesome. Yeah, thank you so much. It was really great talking to you.